You're listening to the Christian Civics Podcast, exploring how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm your host, Rick Barry, the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics. And this is the second in what's shaping up to be sort of an accidental mini-series, reflecting on what, to me, are some of the secretly scariest moments in the Gospels. In our last episode, I talked a little bit about the man beset by many demons and how the way that the villagers reacted to his healing might be a red flag for us, how it might make us a little cautious about our own attitudes towards suffering or lead us to take thoughts captive that up until now we've just sort of been letting creep around unchecked. Today we're looking at another passage. We're looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 33 to 50. It's a long passage, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's also a passage that we often tend to forget is a single story. We tend to remember a lot of the lines and phrases from it, but we almost turn them into a collection of aphorisms and don't think about the fact that these well-known sayings are all actually tied together and all part of Jesus making a bigger point. I'm going to just read the beginning and the end of the story, but I encourage you to read the whole passage. Then after that, we're going to come back and I'll focus in on just specifically the part of this passage that I find the scariest. So if you're reading along, we're looking at excerpts from Mark chapter 9, verses 33 to 50. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Now this is the scary part. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if, with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Be at peace with one another. These are the words of our Lord, and I want to zoom in specifically today on verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if, with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. This is obviously not the only warning in scripture about what a big responsibility it is to teach other people about Christ and to help them grow in the faith. But it is maybe one of the bluntest? The verse about the millstone and the verses about cutting off body parts are each pretty well known on their own. And so are the verses about the first being last and the conversation in the middle of this passage about whether it's okay for someone else to do good works in Jesus's name. But when I remember that Jesus says all this in response to the disciples arguing about which of them is the greatest, and when I think about the fact that these verses are all part of Jesus building up to telling these guys to be at peace with one another, When you take this passage together like that, 
these verses start to mean something different than they might have meant if they were just a whole bunch of proverbs being delivered one after the other without any kind of context. Uh, Jesus, we were just talking about which of us is the best. Guys, don't worry about that. Worry about serving other people and about not leading them astray. Because anyone or anything that leads other people astray, you're better off without. Whether that's someone in our little group here, whether that's someone outside of our little group, or even a part of your own body or a part of my body. Humble yourselves. Worry about not causing other people to stumble instead of worrying about making yourself great. And be at peace with one another. And look, obviously, that's scary to me. I'm someone who likes to talk. I think out loud a lot. And I'm leading a nonprofit that does a lot of its work through teaching classes and now is going to be doing more of our work online on social media through this podcast. The idea that I deserve for the body of Christ to pluck me out and cast me away if I say something that turns out to be off base or if I give bad advice that ends up causing someone to make a mistake, that's a really scary proposition to me. The stuff we work on at the Center for Christian Civics is shaped by people of sincere faith who are well-informed, who are each coming at this question of faith and politics from a very different perspective from one another. So we try to check one another's blind spots. But Jesus knew how to get a point across, and this point gets across to me. And it's not just me. I know pastors and small group leaders and plenty of people who have cited this verse as something that makes them really nervous, gives them a lot of pause. Plenty of people who are taking this seriously, who are being careful, who actively seek out correction and act with restraint, who still think about this verse and still get made nervous by it. And we should be nervous. This passage should give us pause. In an era when so many of the questions we're facing about what it means to live faithfully are pretty complicated, it's really, really easy to treat our own best wisdom as though it were a universal gospel truth. It's really, really important that we only preach Christ and Him crucified, and that we're very clear that everything else downstream from that is, at best, an invitation to reason together about how we live in light of this truth. And yeah, this passage should make us nervous, but it should also make everyone in the church really, really cautious. Because American politics is absolutely full of people who try to shape our faith for political gain. Our public life is absolutely full of people using the language and the motions of the Christian faith in order to get us to support their politics with the same kind of energy and commitment that we want to put into our relationship with Christ. When I read this passage again recently, I couldn't help but think of the introduction to the book Onward by Dr. Russell Moore. He opens the book by talking about how surprised he was in college when an atheist friend of his, who he'd had a lot of debates with, came up to him and asked him to recommend a good church. I'm going to read some excerpts from that introduction now. Can you find me a good Southern Baptist church, he asked, but one that's not too, you know, Southern Baptisty. Surprised, I stammered that I didn't even know that he had become a Christian. He rolled his eyes. I don't believe any of that stuff, he said, but I want to go into politics and I'm never going to be elected to anything in this state if I'm not a church member. And I've looked at the numbers. There are more Southern Baptists around here than anything else. So sign me up. 
I was stunned into momentary silence as he stopped to check out a girl walking past our table. My atheist friend was unusually honest, but I don't think he was honestly all that unusual. Atheism, he realized, isn't just about what one believes or doesn't believe. It's a tribal marker, one that made him something of an exile in the culture of the Christ-haunted South. He was willing to strike a deal with an innocuous form of Christianity in order to get what he wanted out of real life. Church membership would protect him from cultural marginalization, which was, to him, scarier than hell. Jesus was his way of asking America into his heart. This Christianity didn't require him to carry a cross. Just say a prayer and agree to certain values and norms. That's the end of the excerpts. That form of Christianity that Dr. Moore describes, that syncretism between faith and culture, some people in our public life engage in it deliberately. There's Dr. Moore's friend in the story, for example. They position themselves as Christians or associate themselves and their values or goals with Christianity. And as they do that, whether we realize it or not, they end up introducing a little bit of confusion, bit by bit, year by year, into our minds and into our hearts. Confusion about what's Christianity and what's politics. We start reacting to politics we agree with as though it were Christianity. And we start reacting to politics we don't agree with as though it were heresy. And once we do that, it's really, really easy to start shutting out the parts of Christianity that challenge us the same way we shut out people who challenge our politics. And while, yes, there are people in U.S. politics who engage in that kind of behavior in bad faith, there are also plenty of people in our public life who practice that kind of Christianity and never know that about themselves. If that's the environment we grew up in, if that's the only model of what it means to be the church that we have access to, then even if we have a sincere conversion, that warped model of the Christian life is still the Christian life we're going to be raised in, trained up in, and it's going to be what we end up teaching others. Those of us who were raised in that kind of faith are maybe the brothers and sisters who need prayer for wisdom and discernment and humility most of all. Whether we do it on purpose or whether it's an honest mistake, when anyone tries to draw a direct line between the idea of Christian faith and the action of supporting the actions and judgment of specific people, and imply that that line can't be questioned, when someone speaks and acts like supporting this fallen person or this imperfect policy is a do-or-die proxy for the validity of our faith, that malforms us. It encourages us to cease testing everything. It encourages us to forget that the kingdom of God is not found in the kingdoms of the world. It encourages us to assume that some people need Jesus less than other people. It makes it harder for us to see the world the way Christ sees it. It makes it harder for us to live now in ways that actually anticipate the kingdom that's coming. And the idea of ever being on the hook for doing that to other people is really really scary to me. Let's pray together. Jesus, your word tells us that you are able to keep us from stumbling. We need you to do that. We need you to do that for us. Other people need you to do that for us. And we beg you to do that for other people. Keep us from stumbling. We are called to follow you, and we are following you into difficult terrain. The fact that you've trusted us to follow you through a land like this, is a huge honor. It should humble us. It should quiet our hearts. It should impress us. 
but it is also difficult. Give us the humility we need to keep our eyes fixed on you. Like a shepherd, guard us from wolves. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil that is crouching around every corner of our hearts and every corner of the public square. We ask you to do this not just for our own happiness and health, but for the sake of others. Every time we post something on social media, we are potentially influencing the way other people think, and we don't want the things we say to lead other people astray. Everything you've done for us, we don't want our mistakes to obscure that goodness in the eyes of others. And we pray for others. We pray for the thousands of men and women who work in politics or who live and breathe by political news and may not even know that they are remaking you into their own image. And we pray for those who know they're doing it and don't care. We pray for those men and women in our public life who are making honest mistakes. And we pray for those that are making deliberate mistakes. Open the eyes of their hearts and our hearts that we all might understand how much bigger you are than we want to believe. Strike our hearts with your beauty, especially the parts of it that we've been blind to, and your goodness, especially the aspects of your goodness that we've disregarded, and your justice, especially the ways to practice your justice that we've ignored, and your truth, especially the aspects of your truth that we've made relative. We pray these things so that in this world, the world your father and our father loved so much that he sent you to heal it and redeem it and die for it, so that this world can see you more clearly and honor your name. And it's in that name we pray. Amen. All right, that's it for this episode. Thank you very much for joining us. If you have not yet been following us on social media, we're posting reflections, encouragements, even update videos, and some introductions to some of the people that help shape this work besides me um, on Instagram pretty regularly. So you can follow us on Instagram at Christian Civics. And I mentioned at the top of this episode that this is kind of turned into an accidental mini series. And the next couple episodes in it are going to be coming up pretty quickly. So until then, thank you for joining us. And thank you for being part of this work, empowering the church across the political spectrum.